If you grab your Bibles with me this morning, turn to the Gospel of Luke as we aim to finish our time in chapter 2 this morning. One of the unique blessings of Luke's Gospel account is that we have a greater amount of insight into the childhood of Jesus than any other Gospel account. While it is still very limited, uh, in to a couple small events that are shared in his young life. It's still a blessing to slow, to really kind of peek into the window of this most famous family and see testimony of the childhood of God the Son who took on flesh. It is truly remarkable when you slow to think about such things. The child who is God. Today we pick up where we left off in chapter 2, verse 39. And here Luke gives us narration as to the departure of Mary and Joseph and Jesus from the proceedings of Mary's purification ceremony and the infant dedication of Jesus at the temple around the age of six weeks old. It is here where Simeon and Anna both witnessed the child who is the incarnate deity and celebrated his arrival. Look with me where we pick up at verse 39 and 40. Luke 2, 39 and 40. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. With all the formalities of the law and what it called for completed, it was time to make the long trip back home to Nazareth. Truly, God's favor was upon Jesus in a very profound way, for he is the eternal Son who is one with God, the Father and God the Holy Spirit. What a time it is for the incarnate deity not only to be born, but now to be making his way through time, through life. Jesus truly is fully God and fully man. The favor of the Lord was upon him. Luke tells us that Jesus continued to grow and become strong and filled with wisdom. What a remarkable thing to slow to ponder. Jesus as a young toddler, a little boy, yet without sin. Obedient, loving, maturing, growing in wisdom. It's remarkable because the toddler and early elementary years can be quite hard for children born of man, right? Our kids not only grow in size and knowledge, but they grow in sin, and they're good at it. Scripture tells us that Jesus grew in all the important ways that you and I did, and yet without sin. And so to consider these years of his life really is truly remarkable. And I'm going to save the uniqueness of Jesus being without sin and growing in these ways for the last stretch of my sermon because Luke finishes the chapter with this point and I really want to take some time to do business with the uniqueness of the hypostatic union uh, in that part of the sermon. But slow with me to consider the sinless Christ as a baby, then a toddler, and a young child in these years that are testified of here. It's truly boggling to consider as no one has ever known a toddler without sin. Thank you, God, for your amazing work and the incarnation of Christ. Truly remarkable for our good and worthy of praise. Now, I could spend a lot of time here to try to give you illustrations and conjecture about what this meant for Jesus' young life and what this phase of his childhood was like, but that would be to really go beyond what God has ordained to reveal to us. 
And we need to be content with what he's given us and not do what some others have done, which is try to fill in those blanks with our own views of that. Um, uh, an effort towards an authoritative writing of this way is the Roman Catholic apocryphal gospels that are filled with stories of Jesus' young childhood, but not considered part of the orthodox canon of Holy Scripture, therefore not to be considered God's authoritative word on the matter. I'm thankful for what God's decided to trust us with in this account of Luke and hopeful that what he does give us here is good for our soul. Look with me at what he describes next, verse 41 and 42. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went according to the custom. Luke highlights, now it's 12 years later. Six weeks to 12 years. So that amount of time has gone by. And it's time to head to Jerusalem um, for the annual Passover celebration. And once again, in these details, we're shown the piety, the faithful obedience of Mary and Joseph. Um, they're disciplined people who love God and obey his commands. The Old Testament command of the Lord on the Jewish man in particular was to participate in all three major festivals in Jerusalem in those annual ways. Pentecost, Tabernacles, and Passover. Uh, in light of the nations scattering, the custom shifted where those who were far off essentially tried to make sure they were there for at least one of these annual gatherings because of the nature of this, what the nations being scattered meant. Um, the detail we're given here is to highlight Mary and Joseph's commitment to make the journey to Jerusalem every year for the feast of the Passover. We know that as much. The fact that Mary joined him is an extra highlight uh, of her commitment to these things as she was not obligated under the tradition to be there. Uh, Mary joins Joseph in this hard travel um, and she, when she doesn't need to. And this not only shows her piety, her commitment to these things of the Lord, but it shows her close relationship with her husband. And I love that they traveled as a family. Um, other commentators have also noticed just the sweet testimony of their closeness and of their marriage and these things. Um, it's a simple side note, but encouraging to see nonetheless. They're traveling to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, he says, also known as the festival of unleavened bread. God, if you remember, gave Moses and Aaron the instructions for the annual Passover in great detail in Exodus 12. You want to make note of that? You go back and read those incredible details given there at another time. The Passover, in synopsis, is the oldest and most important religious festival of the annual Jewish tradition. It commemorates God's deliverance of the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. Passover began at sunset on the 14th of Nisan, which in our calendar is in March or April, depending on the year. That's why Holy Week varies on our calendar as well. This marks the beginning of what is a seven-day celebration for them. The highlight of the Passover is the famous Seder meal, where the, um, the Jews would celebrate together at the table to eat and drink and rejoice in God's deliverance hand upon their lives. If you remember, it's at the Passover Seder, at that famous meal, when Jesus ate with the disciples in the upper room is where he instituted the Lord's Supper that we now celebrate and practice as the New Covenant Church. Luke gives clarity that on this particular Passover, Jesus is 12 years old. And this has important meaning in the Jewish tradition that helps us have some context for what we're about to read. Um, the age of 12 in that custom was considered the age of discernment. It was a critical and final year of finishing childhood and preparing for 
their teenage years. From our Gentile perspective, this isn't really a big transition. We don't have traditions to really press or prepare our children for this as much. Um, but the Jews do, and you know what they call it, even if it's indirectly, they call it bar mitzvah for the boys. Bar mitzvah means son of the commandment. Uh, this was, bar mitzvah was something that began by tradition later, wasn't happening in this day, but essentially commemorates this transition in a young man. When a Jewish child turns 13 years old, they're, by Jewish tradition, fully responsible for keeping the law on their own, on their own responsibility, no longer dependent on their parents, no longer held accountable through their parents, but them individually. And this is a final trip, therefore, then to Jerusalem for Jesus in preparation for turning 13 the following year. It would be the time in the visit where he would take special note of the specifics of the responsibilities that were upon to be done by him in the coming year. Uh, with all of this in view, it's fitting to see why Jesus now in this year of 12 years old begins exercising ownership for the important um, things that this time is going to mean for his life. Luke continues to testify of this as we read on. Verse 43 through 45. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. For any of us parents, this is hard to read. Um, because of Mary and Joseph's gross mismanagement, right? They traveled a day without their son. That feeling, right, is pretty intense. Um, and I couldn't help but giggle as I was studying over these last few weeks as we celebrated Christmas uh, because I realized the testimony of Mary and Joseph traveling a day's time and leaving Jesus behind is the original Home Alone. <laughs> it really is. And instead of Catherine O'Hare sitting up in the plane to realize her son's not with them, screaming, Kevin! I picture Mary realizing Jesus is not traveling with them and yelling, Jesus! It just is amazing. I mean, what makes that whole narrative so unique is what we feel as parents who go, I can't believe I did this. To help us elevate Mary and Joseph from being the worst parents ever, consider the custom of the context by which they traveled, and it really is helpful for us to understand this better. That the Jewish families would not travel as a single family alone like we do in a car, in the family car, just us. No, they would travel in a good-sized community of fellow Jews, a caravan of many extended family members, neighbors, friends, who were headed to similar destinations along the way. You're talking about a lot of people in the caravan. And there's even traditions that talk about where the ladies and the youngest children walked and where the men and some of the, the, the older boys would walk. And there's some, some uniqueness to how that was all set up. And it just all continues to point towards they didn't leave Jerusalem in this tight little family unit and stay together, which is why eventually they realized we weren't all here. The communal nature of this would therefore give way for parents to rightly think their almost teenage son was indeed among the group that they're in. And at some point in the day's journey, Luke testifies, Mary and Joseph sought to connect with their son, which led them to have an intense search to realize among their relatives and friends he wasn't there. And as soon as they realized that he wasn't in the community of travelers, they immediately backtracked back to Jerusalem with hopes to find him. Now that said, it's very helpful reminder that even the most pious and well-disciplined people, as we continue to be told Mary and Joseph were, make mistakes. 
stumble in significant ways. Um, no one is perfect other than Jesus himself. Paul is clear, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Praise God for his forgiveness and his patience with us who struggle to honor him in, in things that we should. Praise God for his abundant grace given to us in Christ our Lord. At church, we rest in the perfect resume of Jesus and not our own. And this is especially good news to us when we make big mistakes, right? And a big mistake, we would chalk this one up to be in our parenting. Luke 2, 46 through 48, the first part continues. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Luke tells us that three whole days have gone by before they found him, making this, as a parent, all the harder to read. Right? It's one thing to lose your kid for a few hours, but to imagine going through multiple days. Um, this is likely a reference to what that first day of travel was until they found that he was missing. And then essentially you have a day of travel to get back to Jerusalem. And then in that third day, somewhere in that next day, is when they found him in the temple. I mean, Jerusalem is a big city, many layers to it. To finally locate him must have been hard. Um, the difference here is pretty profound. And, and it really stands apart from what we would expect out of other children. And, and again, this is where kind of coming back to the movie, uh, it, I just couldn't help but giggle, right? The difference is Jesus is not eating junk food, buying groceries, and fighting off the infamous wet bandits. No, he's devoted to the things of his father. He's spending time with faithful teachers who preside in the temple. Jesus is most interested in the things of God. And this is another marker of the unique testimony of Jesus at the age of 12, right? Again, picture most boys at 12, if given three days alone, would likely use unaccountable time to wrestle with temptation, to get into mischief, to just simply mismanage their days due to immaturity and sin. But not 12-year-old Jesus. He's disciplined. He's focused on the good things of the Father. Praise God. Notice with me that before Mary gets upset with Jesus for what they just went through, both Mary and Joseph, first, their first response of seeing their son is to be astonished. Here's a 12-year-old boy sitting with the faithful teachers of the temple. And he's fully engaged with them. As parents, this is also a moment of great relief, right? They found their son. He's solid. He's safe. He's not in the streets or out in the gutter. Praise God. The picture we're given here is that Jesus never left the temple courts since the Passover Seder and has been faithfully engaged, engaged in listening and asking questions and giving solid feedback to the teachers of God's law. And this is a customary engagement of the Jewish teachers to sit with their students and engage in question and answer dialogue. Uh, the, the Passover gathering would have meant that the most respected and prominent teachers in Judaism were present at the temple that week. Um, and so this surely then is a most opportune time for Jesus to spend time to study and interact with these who are so well studied. Notice that Jesus is not teaching yet. Um, he's listening. He's learning. He's processing 
and dissecting by asking questions and then giving good answers, coming up with good resolve. Jesus' understanding of these things was good. Luke testifies to this in verse 47. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It's a fun side note that this is the last time that the Jewish teachers are called teacher in the Jewish, in the Gospels. Once Jesus takes on the role later in his ministry, no one is ever referenced by that title in the Gospels other than Jesus. And it's not that there weren't any others. They were still doing what they do. But by comparison of wisdom and teachings of Jesus, there was none of noteworthy comparison. It's an interesting side note. In this testimony, we're given a picture of a devoted student, an insightful interpreter to the matters of Scripture and tradition. Consider with me how critical this development and study would be for Jesus later, who would face the devil's greatest temptations ever given to man. That are noted. Uh, and well-crafted trappings of the most educated Jewish Pharisees and Sadducees in the land Jewish would that Jesus would face often in his ministry. So the preparation for these was truly critical. And while I'm sure that Jesus enjoyed the common practices of a young boy, this is a sweet evidence of his maturing unto manhood that every young man should long to do sooner than later. Paul says it well in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. It's my hope and longing in my own home to walk with our oldest kids in this season of their life to not do what our modern culture says we should do, is let them be kids. Uh, but more in an effort of some of the tradition of even what we see in the preparation for the Jewish children to be more mature in, the, in their teenage years and, and being discipled unto responsibility, to hope that we would help our children do this transition better before we send them out and launch them into adulthood and hope they figure it out. Um, the prayer is for all of us, the Lord would be gracious to help us effort to raise our children in the Lord and prepare them uh, for what life will bring as best we can. And what we can say is, Lord, do your work in us all in these things. Um, I'm thankful to see this important transition happening in Jesus' life in this time of coming to age and it shouldn't surprise us to see his, therefore, avoidance of frivolous things or sinful things, but instead discipline to participate in things that are edifying the things of the Lord. And this is what Jesus essentially explains to his parents when they inquire as to why have you done this to us, right? They're pretty upset. Look with me at verse 48. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Mary reveals the frantic search that they've been on. Surely we can all relate. Empathize with that. She says, we've been in great distress. Those words are potent. Um, and again, we relate. Maybe not in this kind of situation, but, but what life can bring to be in this place. When we naturally misplace or lose something precious to us, it can really stress us out quickly, powerfully. And why is this? Because it's because of the meaning of that thing, right? Um, because of the responsibility, I feel, to not mismanage it. When something of great value or importance is lost, we can quickly feel lost. 
And this can be with a treasured item, um, like a wedding ring or a family keepsake. It can be with a job. It can be with a position on a team. Uh, it can be with a dear friendship. It can most definitely be with a loved one, especially a spouse or a child. The feeling can be unbearably sinking and gut-wrenching. I know how much we need the encouragement of the body of Christ, the truth of the Word of God, the comfort of God Himself in times like these. Christian, I pray that when you find your way to these times in life where you are, where you are experiencing great distress, that you find a way to not let your flesh go crazy, but to invite others in for encouragement, for reorientation, and for prayer. Many times the most important thing that we need in times like this is just to slow down. God's Word says it so well. Psalm 46.10 Be still and know that I am God. When this happens to us, and it will, uh, we have two options. We can truly quickly become undone or we can lean on the Lord and experience his peace, which Paul says is beyond understanding in the midst of great loss or the threat of worry. God's blessed us with a few scriptures that speak to this directly. The one I just mentioned, Paul says in Philippians 4, 6 and 7, powerful, important, helpful. It says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let not your request be made known to God. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious about anything. And yet, man, that's just a real struggle in our flesh, is it not? I mean, what is anxiety? Anxiety is loosely defined as anticipating the future in a variety of possible negative outcomes and then really just freaking out about it. Um, and how easily we can slip into this miserable state where we just are anxious about what's happening or about to happen. And just consider Jesus' words, his beloved words for us. He says in Matthew 6, 33 and 34, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Here Jesus gives us just some really wonderful, helpful, practical counsel um, to deal with this area that is just so hard. Worry, anxiety, stress especially as it relates to what's coming. And, and Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Um, today is enough trouble. You don't need to borrow it from tomorrow. And one of our older saints in the church once told me years ago something that really stuck with me. So when you worry about something in the future, you're making yourself go through the hardship that hasn't even happened yet. And if it does actually happen, then you chose to go through it twice. Once when you worried about it in advance, and then once when it happened. Church, we need a different way to navigate these hardships, losses, worries of life. And really the answer is, thank God for Jesus. Consider his words in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Beloved, those of you who might be in the midst of this kind of stress or loss or worry, even right now, this time of your life, I just pray that God's reminders in Holy Scripture and these things are so practical for you to address that stress. Um, and not just 
how to fix it with action, but again, to really first and foremost, be still and know that he is God. We really have to start there. Know that he has you in his mighty grip. Know that he can give you peace beyond your understanding. If you would just loosen your grip and in prayer, trust it to him. In faith, trust it to him. And in this, if we trust him and lean not on our own understanding, Proverbs 3, 8 says, it will be healing for your flesh and refreshment to your bones. May it be so. I can't help but wonder how this sets the table, this three days sets the table for what will be down the road when Mary and those who love Jesus the most will lose him again for three days after he was crucified on the cross. And just like Mary and Joseph found Jesus alive in a well, Mary and the disciples will find Jesus alive and well on that Easter morning in his resurrected state. Oh, how miserable those three days must have been and how absolutely great it must have been to see the resurrected Christ alive and so very well. Praise God for his perfect plan for victory over sin and death, for resurrection and new life in Christ for all of his people. Mary's upset. Okay, we get it. Let's listen to Jesus' response. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus saying, why were you looking for me is his way of saying, you should have known. You should not be surprised at my focus and commitment of my life to these things. Did you lose sight of the fact that I must be about the things of my Father? And the significance of this statement is really revolutionary for no one in all of time or in all of Holy Scripture ever claimed that God the Father was their Father until now. Not until this statement by Jesus. Jesus' words here are truly groundbreaking to clearly speak of God the Father as his eternal Father, thereby claiming his deity as God the Son. And another place like we have of so many to really give great clarity to the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, three who are one, um, this is not meant to be disrespectful to Mary and Joseph, but informative and an essential truth regarding the uniqueness of Jesus' life and mission to ultimately do the will of the Heavenly Father. Mary and Joseph know the most special boy they're raising and the priority of his life, um, but not to the fullest of extent, right? They're still lacking a lot of insight into what all this will mean. It helps us, the reader, see Jesus of not being sinfully disrespectful here, but simply being clear about what should be in their clear view. While Mary and Joseph's flesh, like all of ours, can quickly and often lose sight of the eternal and get overly focused on the temporary, this lapse of their judgment and perspective doesn't change the very clear mission of Jesus and what he came to see through until it is finished. Praise God. A modern day illustration might be <clears throat> to help us kind of understand this moment for Mary, Joseph, and Jesus and why what Jesus says here is not disrespectful. I try to think about how, how could we read this and, and it just brought me back to my own journey and specifically, uh, my journey as of late with my second-born son, Parker, who's 16. He's just now beginning to work 
as a part of our discipleship of him, his transition from adolescence into manhood. Um, and yet, his mother and I, one day, if we're not used to him taking on these new roles and developing in life, all of a sudden we could be in a panic. Hey, where's our son? And we can't find him. And then all of a sudden we do find him and he's at work. And so it would be like Parker saying to us, guys, you know my schedule. Why would I be anywhere else? I'm right here at work where I'm supposed to be handling the priorities of my life. This is essentially what Jesus is emphasizing to Mary and Joseph about this phase of his life and the task at hand for him of being right where he needs to be. I hope it's helpful for you to see um, he's not disrespectful. Jesus does not sin. He's simply telling the truth about what he's doing and why they should not be surprised to find him there. Now, this doesn't fully translate to Mary and Joseph, again, because they don't have full view of what Jesus is doing in his life and ministry. And Luke really says this straight up in verse 50. Look with me. It says, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Maybe because Jesus is 12 and they're still getting over being upset, right? Really worried. Most likely, though, it's because they don't know the fullness of what Jesus is there to do. Um, they don't have it all in view. All the details of his mission, all the layers of even who he is, there's some of that still coming into view for them, the mysteries of it, right? Church, if you remember in my introduction last week for the Lord's Supper, um, when I spoke of the interaction between Mary and Jesus, at his first miracle, right? The wedding of Cana, John chapter two. Mary and Jesus are both talking and thinking on two very different planes. And that's essentially what we have here. If you remember John two, three and four, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So again, another text where it feels like to a fleshly quick reading of it, like maybe Jesus is being disrespectful. He's not. I don't have time to get into why not. But it, she's thinking on one plane. He's thinking on a very, very different plane, right? She, she's looking at a wedding party saying it needs more wine, right? Can you and your boys help out with this? Jesus is thinking about the hour of his suffering by which he'll drink the cup of wrath, do our sin on our behalf. Praise God for Jesus' commitment to the mission to save us from our sins, to be our forerunner of resurrection. Truly, truly wonderful news. We're helped to understand this interaction with what Luke tells us next in verse 51. It says, He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Two important helps were given here. First, that while Mary doesn't fully comprehend all that Jesus is doing or what he will do, she receives it as good and right. How do we know that? We know it by her response. They didn't understand Jesus' explanation, but they're okay with it and still turn to praise to God in their heart. Mary continues to be right in the middle of God's holy will for her life. And what a journey it is, church. Um, she's readily submissive. Lord, let it be to me as you have said. And she's in awe of God's, for God's hand at work constantly in these things. We see that testimony again and again in her life. Um, even when it's not making sense to her. She's faith in the Lord. And I love this testimony about Mary. I love the simplicity of her faith in God, even when it doesn't add up. It just propels her trusting of him. And church, that's a huge takeaway for us. A great inspiration it is to exercise faith in God no matter what we face. Even when our circumstances are really hard and they don't add up. And they often won't. You know, he's clear in his word. His thoughts, his ways are not ours. We don't see it the same. 
But we can rest not in our own understanding, but in the Lord who's on the throne now and forever and who's always good in all that he does and ordains. God's word is so good and helpful for us in these things. And, and by way of reminder, you're probably already thinking of the very famous, very helpful words of Proverbs 3, 5, and 8. Through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. May it be so. Luke 2.51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Notice that clarity there. He was submissive to them. Right? Luke testifies Jesus was a submissive son to his parents. Meaning he did not disregard their authority in his life. Sinfully argue. The statement of fact also helps us see that the words of explanation he just gave to their inquiry, inquiry as to why he wasn't with them, his, his answer was not sinful or disrespectful. Another help to, to read that correctly. The fact is, Jesus does not sin. This is truly an astounding, astounding and boggling thing to really try to even imagine. Especially when we consider his activity as a child and then all of the developmental ways that an infant grows through a toddler stage, elementary stage, and preteens and teens and on. And those who are born of man, who have original sin, we, we really struggle in sin in those different layers of life to honor our parents in so many ways. And yet, Jesus was without sin. It says finally in verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the second time in this stretch of Luke's account that he highlights that Jesus grew in life, in knowledge. Right? He had layers and and growth and discovery and, and an increase that he didn't have prior. Right? He said that in Luke 2.40 earlier in the sermon. The, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. The favor of God was upon him. So when we look to God's holy word to better understand the, the super uniqueness of the incarnation of Jesus, we see God the Son humbly, and fully taking on all that it is to be human without compromising all that he is as God. What we need to see clearly is that the humanity that Jesus assumed to himself, to his person, was complete and lacking nothing. His humanity. The only thing his flesh didn't have that all the rest of mankind has is sin. No original sin, no practiced sin. But church, in every other way, every other way, Jesus' flesh is flesh, just like you and me. It's not Superman flesh. It's, it's flesh. It's just without sin. And this means he experienced all the things that you and I do in our life, except those things connected to sin. It is Jesus' humanity that allows us to have great comfort in the fact that God the Son relates to us in a way that the angels and the animals cannot. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. 
This is truly an important comfort for us. Christian brother and sister, please understand, Jesus sympathizes in your weaknesses and temptations. Your hunger, your pain. He knows deeply and truly what it is like when those closest to you betray you, even abandon you. Jesus knows. He really knows. Look with me for a moment. Celebrate some of the major ways that Jesus relates to us in his humanity because this is one of those moments in Holy Scripture we really see this so clearly. We see that Jesus was conceived and born. Right? There's been much of our study in Luke until today where we encounter some testimony of his growing through his childhood. We see in Holy Scripture that Jesus grew. He developed um, the two texts we're reading today are prominent places where this is stated. Right? In his humanity, Jesus experienced ordinary human growth and development. As a human, Jesus grew intellectually. He grew physically. He grew spiritually. He grew relationally. He went through all of that growth in his human nature. In Jesus' life, we read that he experienced human limitations in his flesh. It says in Matthew 4, 2 that he hungered, in John 4, 7 and 19 that he thirsted, that he grew tired, we see in John 4, 6. He experienced human emotions. Matthew 26, John 11, Jesus experienced the full range of ordinary, non-sinful human emotions. He was presented with great temptation. He knows what that press is like. Most famous in the extreme temptations presented to Jesus by Satan while he was truly hungry after not eating 40 days, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, testified in Matthew 4. Scripture tells us elsewhere the presentation of temptations caused real suffering in Jesus' flesh. Hebrews 2.18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus was tortured, experienced great pain. Jesus died. The gospel narrative of Christ's passion, his death, his burial, highlight his humanity in the most amazing ways. Amazing because God cannot die. God is eternal and immortal, right? But in God the Son's assumed humanity, He did suffer. He did die as part of His atoning work. Church, we have no hope for forgiveness from sin, atonement for sin, Eternal life with God without the death of Jesus to satisfy God's wrath due our sin. Romans 8, 3-4 For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Praise God. Praise God for His perfect and complete work in Christ on our behalf. He is truly our royal Redeemer and the Savior of our souls. Now, with all that under our belt, the questions that often come up, when we read that Jesus grew, if God the Son is divine, Meaning, if he is truly and fully immutable, impassable, I'll say, eternal, then how is he also growing, learning? How is he full of emotion? How is he able to die? If God is unmoved and never altered, as Scripture clearly testifies, then how do all these characteristics of his full and true humanity 
play out without compromising his divinity, how are they to be understood? We've been on a journey as of late these last few years to really try to climb into this better. It's truly worth growing consideration, practice, to, to really get some of this clarity of the hypostatic union correct when we encounter a text like we do today. And as I've mentioned before, our historic, historic Baptist confession is so helpful to make this very point. Chapter 8, verse 2. Um, listen carefully to these historic truths about who God is, not what we think him to be, but who he is according to his holy word. It says this, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything he has made. When the fullness of time came, he took upon himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her. The power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus, he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David in fulfillment of the scriptures. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man. Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. What this means is we must think about the incarnation and the hypostatic union of Jesus' two natures correctly and not turn them into something else. It's unbiblical, even if that's hard for us to do. When Scripture speaks of God the Son taking on flesh, taking on mankind's nature, Understand that it cannot mean that he surrenders the fullness of the state of his divine being. For if he does, he ceases to be eternally God. This cannot be in any way. We cannot say God the Son was one way in eternity and then another way in creation. For that would mean that he changed. God cannot and does not change. When we read that Jesus grew in knowledge, it does not mean that he is not omniscient, all-knowing. Here's the key. What we have to see in Jesus' incarnation that it is something like nothing else. It doesn't relate to us because none are like God. So while Jesus is very relatable in his humanity, he is utterly set apart in the reality of having two natures, but being one person. Again, listen to another part of our historic confession, chapter 8, verse 7, part 7. In, the, in his work of mediation, Christ acted according to both natures, by each nature doing what is appropriate to itself. Even so, because of the unity of the person, that which is appropriate to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person under the designation of the other nature. Consider the definition of the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ, eternal, fully divine nature, being united to his fully human nature at his incarnation. These two natures are not mixed, confused, or changed but are united without loss of separate identity, and they are inseparable. At the incarnation, true God and true man are eternally united in one person. The properties concur in one person, God the Son. Each nature does what is proper to itself. This is how Jesus' human nature can learn and be hungry and grow 
because it doesn't compromise or change his divine nature. The key is the unity of the person. That which is appropriate to one nature is sometimes attributed to the person under the designation of the other nature, but that does not mean that they compromise what belongs only to the one nature and not the other. Thomas Aquinas spoke to this very well. Hear this clearly. Christ is one person subsisting in two natures, the human and the divine. Hence, he can be described by names being drawn from either nature. Furthermore, no matter what the name by which he's designated, it cannot be predicated of him because there is one person underlying both natures. Consequently, we can say that the man created the stars and that the Lord of glory was crucified. However, it was not as man that he created the stars, but as God. Nor was it as God that he was crucified, but as man. Further, we all agree that this hypostatic union is necessary for our salvation. Church, what we must understand is that God the Son did not add something he did not have, and he did not lose something he already had in the Incarnation. So while his human flesh is special, it's only able to be in one place at a time. The person of God the Son is not spatial. I meant to say spatial. Human flesh is spatial, right? It's meant to be in one place at one time. The person of God the Son is not spatial. So we must not think the person of Jesus is, is absent from us now. Jesus is not far away. No, he's more close than we can fathom. This is because he's God, because he's omnipresent. He's with us all the time and, and every, everywhere. In the Advent, in his incarnation, God was with us in a different way, in a fleshly way, in a visible way. This is what we celebrate, Emmanuel, God with us at Christmas. We also understand that Jesus' human flesh is not with us now. Why? He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Right? He will bodily return one day. This is true. We cannot see him now, his flesh now, but we will one day. It doesn't mean he's not present, though, as he always has been and always will be. Now, we acknowledge the reality of the work of the human nature and how different than the divine nature, we must not divide God the Son into two different persons or ascribe to him two different personalities, for he is one person with two natures. Now, does this easily compute in our minds? No. It's why I continue to effort to carefully walk us through it. We have a proper view of God according to his word. Because we struggle with it doesn't make it less true. That's the key. Did Jesus learn, grow, experience pain, get hungry? Yes. The person of Jesus experienced these things in his human nature. Does God the Son learn, grow, experience pain, and get hungry? No, God, God does not change or increase or, or ever not have enough. The person of Jesus never experienced change, emotions, limitations, lack of knowledge or power in his divine nature. We must be willing to think differently about these wondrous realities of the hypostatic union of Jesus. According to scripture, God the Son assumed to himself a human nature he did not add, he did not lose anything. Church, this is how we're able to see the human nature, the human body of Jesus growing, learning, improving, 
maturing. We need to see that it is happening for real. And it doesn't mean the divine nature of Jesus is growing, changing, learning, maturing. God the Son, Jesus, is truly and fully God and truly and fully man in the Incarnation. And as we read today that Jesus grew and matured and learned and yet without sin, we should really slow to praise God for the wonder of his perfect plan for God the Son to take on flesh, to assume to himself a human nature, to live and to die and to rise so that we can be reconciled to him forever. Amen? This had to happen so that we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses and could atone for our sin. This is the glory of the incarnation we celebrate every Christmas. The wonder of the hypostatic union of Jesus' two natures. It is the child who is God. The perfection of the will of God and the only hope mankind has for salvation and eternal life. All glory be to Christ. Pray with me. Lord, what a magnificent portion of your holy word we've seen today. Um, it's so simple and yet so profound. We thank you for all of scripture to help us interpret and understand these things. <clears throat> we thank you for the work that you're doing in each of us in this day and this season of our lives. What these things mean to us that we would really truly have a response of gratitude. Um, and one that just really causes us to well up with worship for you. Um, to, to sing of who you are and what you've done. To rest in the finished work of Christ. And steward these days for your glory and the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, for those who have not yet been given ears to hear, save them, Lord. Give them faith, Christ, new life. For those of us who know you, are saved, Lord, hear us as we worship you, as we respond in faith and not by sight to these things for your glory and others' good. We praise you, Lord. If it be your will, bring us to a new year to serve you these days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.